Hey, everybody, get out your plate for the full menu of VegCast 78. Yes, we are back with another full menu of VegCast here in mid to late February. And uh, we're going to be talking this time out about going vegan. If you're a vegetarian listener to VegCast, we love you and appreciate your support and your listenership. But it's probably about time to consider going vegan. And if you are, you may want to avail yourself of the book Vegan in 30 Days by Sarah Taylor. We're going to be talking with Sarah about how she came to uh, conceive of and write this book to help uh, people transition to veganism. Although, of course, uh, in her case, it's mostly transitioning from a an omnivorous diet. There are still valuable tips in there, and we'll be getting some of those from her today. We're also going to be listening to a new tune from Amanda Rogers, VegCast fave, uh, vegetarian musician, and we also will have a science fact about the effects on human communities of uh, confined animal feeding operations and slaughterhouses. And we will top it off with some news tidbits about uh, vegetarian items happening here in Philadelphia. So please sit back and relax and crank up your MP3 players. We deliver to you this 78. Okay, as always, we've got that full menu thing going on, so let's go right now into our interview with Sarah Taylor. I would like to welcome now to the VegCast Airwaves Sarah Taylor, the author of Vegan in 30 Days. Sarah, welcome to VegCast. Hey, thank you, Vance. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. This this book uh, treats an issue that uh, I've been hearing a lot more about, which is people going from either a meat-eating lifestyle or a vegetarian lifestyle to veganism. Uh, people are looking into veganism increasingly, and this is a book that basically lays out a um, a 30-step program in 30 days uh, to make that not only possible, but feasible and doable, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, Vance, I had, um, when I went vegan, as I'm sure happens to many vegans, I had a lot of friends and family notice, you know, changes in my appearance, and then also just, you know, changes in, in my lifestyle, and and I was just happier, and I was, you know, eating different foods, and, and people just got very intrigued. And so they started asking a lot of questions. You know, well, how do you eat that way, and, and how do you eat out at restaurants, and how do you survive without cheese? <laughs> um, I had so many questions, and the same questions kept coming up over and over and over. And I could tell everybody why I went vegan. There yeah, as of- you were saying before this, there were a lot of books on the market about why to go vegan, but you... There was any kind of a book on the market that I had found that really talked about how to go vegan um, in a a simplistic way. And I think it seems so overwhelming to people to give up all these foods, and they're they're focusing on what they can't eat rather than what what they can eat and how they're going to implement it into their daily life with families and travel and work and everything else. And I thought, well, it's actually pretty simple. You just have to break it down. And so that was the idea, was to break it down into 30 steps, and, and some of the steps are, are hard, like maybe one day you're actually giving up cheese, which would be really difficult, and it actually might take you more than one day. Um, but other steps are very easy, like getting recipes off the Internet or 
you know, finding a, an online support group or something that, that might interest you and find you people to give you resources and support as you're going through your process of adopting a vegan diet. Okay. Well, let's talk about how you uh, came to, to lay out these steps because, I mean, it's a, you know, it's no mean feat to say here is the way that, is, uh, that I think is going to work best uh, when you have to achieve uh, what couldn't be a very radical lifestyle change, and uh, you had to make decisions about, uh, you know, like you were saying, I, I assume you were kind of balancing out uh, big, difficult steps with easier ones so that uh, it was kind of paced along. But how did you decide things like how, what order uh, people should do things in? I mean, do you have, have you, uh, have you tested these on real people, these, these steps, or how did you go about that? I have, and I've, I've had some friends that have, you know, said, well, if, if I could change one thing, what would you have me change first? And, you know, just people would ask, where do I start if I'm not really ready to jump in full steam? And, you know, I always say you need to start with motivation. And, and my very first chapter of my book is, you know, really know why you want to go vegan. Because if you don't have a good motivation for doing anything in life, you won't stick to it. And so you have to really understand why you want to try it first. And if you just want to give it a shot because you saw Sarah do it or you saw Vance do it, well, that's fine, too. But you need to know what that motivation is to keep you going. And, um, you know, if you get enough motivation like some of us, and I'll, I'll highly recommend John Robbins' books, either like Diet for New America or The Food Revolution. I mean, I had no interest in going vegan. I was just trying to lose 10 pounds, and I thought I was picking up a diet book. And I thought vegans were really kind of out there. <laughs> So when I read his book, and I went vegan overnight, there's no one that could have been more shocked than I was, but it all started with the right motivation. Right. So the first step I have in my book is, is motivation, and then after that, actually giving up certain things. I just went in what I thought was kind of a logical progression for okay. most people, you know, giving up red meat first and maybe poultry after that and so forth. All right. Well, let, let me just ask about, that. you know, some nutritionists or vegan uh, educators would say, you know, if you want to do something that you're going to see a lot of uh, effect from right away, you should give up dairy first. And I noticed that you you did put meat first and left the dairy uh, to later. Did you you know did you look into that and say, well, maybe I should put that? Or, but there's some rationale for for uh, you know putting the meat, giving up the meat first. Yeah, I'll tell you why. In fact, that's a great question. By one of my best friends, Carol, she, she often asks the same question because she's always so surprised by the answer. She says, if I could give up one thing for my health, what would it be? And I always say dairy. I mean, dairy is just liquid sludge in your vessels. Right. <laughs> and so from a health standpoint, yeah, I think it would be best to give up dairy products first. But if you're trying to actually make a change and stick with it, I think what you want to do is have success early on. And I think it's much easier to give up chicken, for example, which, by the way, as we all know, a piece of chicken by itself doesn't taste of much of anything. Right. Sauces and things you put on it. So if you can give up chicken and go, wow, I haven't had chicken in a week, and I used to eat it all the time. Man, I can do this. I'm great. And then you finally get to the chapter that says, now the, now's the day you're going to give up cheese or ice cream or something that you really like. I think those are a lot harder to give up just because of the taste. Right. Okay. Well, in, in terms of, uh, I mean, you're talking to the reader about uh, the process they're going through uh, the whole time and kind of sympathizing with them in this. And I was wondering uh, whether you pitched it intentionally uh, to be even more conservative than, than you might have needed to be. I, I got uh, some flack from uh, the Vegan Freaks, Bob and Jenna Torres, uh, when I reviewed Vegan Freak and uh, said that 
there were places in the book where they, they really, I think, went overboard making veganism sound like it's just as easy as pie. There's not, you know, you don't have to be concerned with anything, blah, blah, blah. They didn't mention B12 or omega-3s or anything. I almost felt like sometimes you're, you were erring on the side of, of making uh, the, the vegan uh, transition seem even more difficult maybe than it needed to be. Like when you talk about vegan baking and uh, obviously for most people, you know, who aren't vegan, you look at the concept of, of baking without eggs and say, how the hell are you going to be able to do that? Um, but looking at it now from the other side, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've personally baked a lot of things without eggs without even having to use one of the substitutes. And you, you, you emphasize these substitutes a lot. It, and what was the, was there a lot of, you know, ph philosophizing that went into that or how did you come to pitch it just to exactly at that point? Yeah, you bring up a good point, Vance. And, and it could be that I, I maybe did go too far the other direction from the authors of Vegan Freak and made it sound a little harder than it is. And I suppose the reason I probably did that is that for me, like I said, I had this huge motivation. And the minute I finished the last page of Diet for a New America, there just wasn't, there wasn't an option anymore for me. I, I simply couldn't eat meat and dairy products anymore because of, you know, the, the sadness associated with how they get to your plate. And so for me it was very easy, but I really wrote the book for, for people who um, have maybe not read that, read that type of information yet and are thinking, wow, this is interesting, I'd love to give it a try, but I don't know where to start. And generally these people don't have a lot of motivation, and, I, and you know, this is where maybe I did go overboard, is that I think in their minds, and this is just me projecting from what my friends were saying to me, is that they think it's going to be so hard, and so I was trying to sympathize with what they're going through. That was not what I went through because I went vegan overnight. So I was trying to sympathize with people who were maybe taking it a little bit slower, and that's how the tone of the book came out. All right. Let's just talk about you went vegan overnight because you had uh, this overwhelming motivation, um, and you did talk about motivation you know, when you start the book out, but uh, you do kind of back off and, and not overemphasize the why of veganism. And I'm, I'm wondering, was it tempting to... <laughs> to keep on trying to put that in because, you know, it, there there's a case to be made that if you have a strong enough motivation, if you can inculcate that in people, it could, you know, put them over the hump as well as the the logistics of it. But your book is, is very rigorously uh, devoted to the logistics themselves. Yeah. And you know what, Vance? That's the book I'm working on now. It's the why book. <laughs> okay, great. So I did the how book first. I'm doing the why book second. And I think what I tried to do, and, and you can tell me if I succeeded or not, I really tried in my book to motivate people to go to the resources that motivated me. So instead of trying to replicate something as amazing as John Robbins' books, I really tried to say, hey, listen, you need motivation to do this, and probably the best motivation is to really understand the industry, the food industry, and you can do that if you read these books, and I listed a, a bunch of them there. So hopefully I convinced people to read the why books, and I'm going to be working on my, well, I am working on my own why book, Why Go Vegan, um, Right now, so why go vegan? So we can we can watch for that uh, sometime in the future from from the uh, the Sarah Taylor conglomerate. Yeah, I don't know if that'll be the, <laughs> the title of it, but I've done the How to Go Vegan book, and now I'm thinking of you know the Why to Go Vegan book. So All right, and how wh when was this that you read Diet for a New America? That was 2002. Okay, so you've been vegan uh, most of this decade. Yep. And have you, can, are there uh, any things that uh, in being vegan that you weren't able to uh, include in the book or maybe thought, I better not mention this. <laughs> I am here for people that are, for newbies 
because it might, uh, you know, it, it, it might scare them away. You know, I didn't. I, I pretty much put everything in the books that I felt like they needed to be aware of because I thought if they get blindsided by something I left out, then they're going to, you know, probably just think, oh, see, there's probably other things that are going to blindside me too, and this is going to be too hard. So I tried to be pretty inclusive, but quite honestly, I, I think that once, and you, you, you'll probably know the same thing, once I had been vegan for about two to three months, at that point, I was starting to figure out how to substitute certain things that I might want to substitute, for example, with baking or, um, you know, just cooking without meat or, or dairy. And I started to have a, a few recipes I really liked, and I started to know what I could order at two or three of my favorite restaurants. And all of a sudden, you know, the first two or three months, you know, you're, it's kind of like when a woman has a baby and she's got oxytocin flowing and she makes it work. So I had all this motivation and I was making it work. Well, yeah, this is great. I'm vegan. I'm vegan. But all I was eating was salads for the first two or three weeks. After about two or three months, that's when things started to click. And I, I did know what to order at my favorite restaurants. I did have a few recipes that I knew how to cook. And it just got easier and easier from there. And it couldn't be easier. I mean, I have the easiest time eating wherever I go. It's, I mean, I travel all over the world to some rather strange places for vacations and things, and I've never really had a problem with it. Okay. Well, I have to say, I did uh, appreciate the, you know, the steps include things that aren't just about replacing things in your diet, but, um, but dealing with the, the fact that you're going to be vegan in a non-vegan world, like uh, learning how to say no. And when, when people use that phrase, learning how to say no, a lot of the time they just mean learning to say no, um, and that was part of the implication, but you actually do go into how, you know, the ways that, that you can, when you're in a situation where you have to say, no, that's, uh, that's not going to work for me, uh, how you can kind of accommodate yourself to the situation and, and stick to your principles, uh, but at the same time realize that you're, you're kind of an ambassador for, for veganism and uh, you don't want to, you know, piss people off unnecessarily. Right. So. Right. Because every time someone asks you, if you're invited over to someone's house, for example, and they didn't know you were vegan, and you know, how you deal with that can really turn them off to veganism, or it can make them intrigued, and maybe they'll learn from it, and they'll be intrigued by it and want to know more. So, yeah, I think how you deal with non-vegans in all kinds of settings is just so important. You have to think ahead about that, because if you don't think ahead, you'll find yourself in some really awkward, awkward situations. Yeah. And so now uh, you're working on your why book. Um, are there any other projects or things uh, that are going on in the Sarah Taylor universe that uh, we should be sure that VegCast listeners are aware of? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm working on the second book, and I'm also going to be speaking at uh, a good number of the vegetarian festivals coming up this year. I know VegFest in Seattle is the first one I'll be doing on April, I think it's April, early April or something. Well, we can find oh, that out and we'll put that in our show notes. Yeah, thank you. And uh, if people hear this and they they want to go find out about the book, obviously I guess uh, they could find it at Amazon.com. Is there a particular link we should be sure to give people to uh, so they get the maximum uh, effect or, uh, you know, get the maximum resources with it or whatever? Yeah, obviously they can just Google vegan in 30 days and get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the big bookstores. Um, I also have my own website called theveganextdoor.com, and that's, uh, that's really kind of in progress. We've got a lot of interesting things going up right now, and that's more of a, a resource for people interested in going vegan. Okay. Well, we'll get that uh, into the show notes also, and uh, we're about out of time here. But uh, Sarah Taylor, 
uh, author of Vegan in 30 Days. That's from the book publishing company. Thanks for joining us on VegCast. Thank you so much. Take care. Get up in the morning, I put on a smile and I can't afford it, I can't afford it. I'm missing something, I'm looking for it, but my flows are freezing, they're stealing all my freedom. In this season I love, I leave my buttons undone, I'm Amanda Rogers with Hibernating uh, from her album Heartwood. I picked that one because uh, we've all been kind of hibernating a lot here in Philadelphia over the past uh, month, basically, uh, where we've just had uh, tremendous record-breaking amounts of snow, and the record-breaking snow is still sitting around on the streets and sidewalks and yards just forming huge mounds, and sometimes uh, we get hold up in uh, in the house and uh, feel like we are actually hibernating. But now we have to come out of hibernation in order to get into the science fact. Our science fact for VegCast 78. Study CAFOs a threat to public health. Uh, that's the headline in the Iowa Independent. Lead is confined animal feeding operations, CAFOs, pose serious threats to public health due to their impact on air and water quality and the potential to help in the spread of disease. According to a new study released Thursday, the study commissioned by Cedar Rapids-based Environmental Law Center Plains Justice found that CAFOs can serve as breeding grounds for bacteria and dangerous pathogens. 
the article continues, health professionals fear the health impacts that could arise from these facilities, including an increase in treatment-resistant bacteria. CAFOs are also considered breeding grounds for new viruses, and it mentions, obviously, the H1N1 virus, but uh, toes the line journalistically at not calling that swine flu, even though the context in this case is uh, mentioning how uh, confined animal feeding operations were responsible, uh, specifically pig farms, for uh, the H1N1 virus uh, spreading to people. There are also serious concerns, it continues, over air quality for residents living near CAFOs. Among the health effects documented for CAFO workers are altered lung function and an assortment of respiratory complications, including a worsening of existing asthma, asthma-like symptoms, and chronic bronchitis. Workers in hog confinement facilities have also been identified as being at risk for hydrogen sulfide poisoning as a result of prolonged exposure. Now, that's one study in Iowa that's uh, looking pretty specifically at uh, CAFOs. And, you know, people can say, well, yeah, factory farms, we, th- we all agree that something really needs to be done about that. Meanwhile, I'm just going to keep on buying all of my meat and dairy at the grocery store and trying not to think about it. But uh, just to really drive this home. There's a study that uh, was done this past year that I had heard about uh, a while back in the Freakonomics blog of the New York Times and was waiting until the actual abstract of the study was available and uh, it came out, but I did not find out about it until just recently. This is by Fitzgerald et al. It was published in Organization in Environment, Slaughterhouses and Increased Crime Rates, an empirical analysis of the spillover from the jungle into the surrounding community. And I'm just going to read the abstract to you here since it's uh, pretty short. Uh, And since I cannot find a news article talking about this, uh, more than 100 years after Upton Sinclair denounced the massive slaughterhouse complex in Chicago as a jungle, qualitative case study research has documented numerous negative effects of slaughterhouses on workers and communities. Of the social problems observed in these communities, the increases in crime have been particularly dramatic. These increases have been theorized as being linked to the demographic characteristics of the workers, social disorganization in the communities, and increased unemployment rates. But these explanations have not been empirically tested, and no research has addressed the possibility of a link between the increased crime rates and the violent work that takes place in the meatpacking industry. This study uses panel analysis of 1994-2002 data on non-metropolitan communities in states with right-to-work laws, a total of 581 counties, to analyze the effects of slaughterhouses on the surrounding communities using both ordinary least squares and negative binomial regression. The findings indicate that slaughterhouse employment increases total arrest rates, arrests for violent crimes, arrests for rape, and arrests for other sex offenses in comparison with other industries. This suggests the existence of a Sinclair effect unique to the violent workplace of the slaughterhouse, a factor that has not previously been examined in the sociology of violence. And the reason that I put these two studies together here on the science fact is to bring home two points. One is that it's not just a question of factory farms being a problem for people, 
Um, there are obviously ill health effects that come from those, a lot of which can be attributed to the concentration in one place of a great amount of crap going on, uh, both figuratively and literally. But it's not just the scale of it that's the problem. As the Fitzgerald study points out, it is the violence inherent in the job, and that's a job that is necessary uh, no matter how much space uh, the animals have, no matter how humanely they're raised, they still have to be slaughtered, and somebody has to do that job. And here we see that that has an effect not just on that person, but their surrounding communities of increasing the violence that's occurring in the human population. So the next time somebody says to you, oh, animal activists, you care more about animals than you do about people, uh, please remind them uh, of the actual scientific studies that have shown that the practice of raising and killing animals is bad for people. It's not just something we are theorizing, but instead is a bona fide science fact. Okay, now continuing on that topic of going vegan in 30 days, uh, we will have an update. The vegan pledge here in Philadelphia just ended. I just need to check in with that, and we will have a report on that for you on VegCast 79, but also in the Philadelphia listening area, a couple of items of interest. One is a new site uh, from the Humane League called Take5Save5.com. You'll find that in our show notes. And if you go there, there's a, a way that you can uh, assist them in sending out vegetarian starter kits uh, to people in different cities and uh, save the lives of animals by doing uh, very little work. <laughs> so check that out. Uh, it's an ingenious strategy with proven results. Uh, and when I say proven, they did a survey and uh, extrapolate from that, even though uh, they they say there may be survey bias. It does look like uh, they're getting some good results with this, so I encourage you to check that out. If you have five minutes to spare and want to use those to save five animals' lives, uh, there's also a gala coming up if you are listening to this on Friday, uh, February 19th. It'll be tonight from 7 to 11 p.m., the Philly No-Kill Gala. Uh, this is sponsored by the Rat Chick Rescue and Advocacy Group and Citizens for a No-Kill Philadelphia. They'll have music, dancing, vegan dinner, silent art auction, and really, who couldn't use a little bit more silent art? And special guest, this is at the Waterfall Room 2015 Water Street. It's a semi-formal event, and all proceeds uh, will go to Rat Chick Rescue and Citizens for a No-Kill Philadelphia. Please no furs, and that is about it. All right, that is VegCast 78, and thanks to Sarah Taylor for coming on to talk about how to go vegan in 30 Days and How Vegan in 30 Days was written. Thanks also to Amanda Rogers 
for giving us permission to play uh, Hibernating as well as other tracks of hers on our VegCasts. And of course, thanks to you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and subscribing to VegCasts. You can subscribe at iTunes, please do. And watch for VegCast 79 in early March. Until then, please get out there and live like you mean it. Veg.